Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today is the final episode of our season. We will be taking the rest of the summer off and we'll return in mid to late August of this year with a bunch of new episodes for you all. We may have a few things that drop over the course of the summer, but nothing major um, because we'll be spending most of our time getting ready for the fall. Um, so there's like in the past few seasons, I don't believe we'll have an overarching theme for the fall season. I kind of like the flexibility of being able to tackle issues as they come up and being able to explore different topics. Um, I know we'll probably revisit the scriptures once or twice, like we did with the book of Tobit. And uh, we'll do some other really fun interviews and discussions as well. So we're looking forward to that. If there are topics that you want us to discuss, feel free to reach out to us via email or on social media to let us know what you'd like to hear. And we will definitely consider those things. And I think before we go any further, it also is, is good for us to stop and just say thank you to all of our communion of Patreon saints, to our the various guests who come on the show, to all of you who listen and view us on YouTube. We really, really appreciate your support. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal that you guys want to spend time in your day to, to listen to us uh, talk about various topics and interview um, some amazing guests. So we really appreciate everybody's participation and your willingness to uh, support us monetarily, support us um, by commenting, subscribing, liking, and interacting with us on our social media. Um, we really appreciate it, and we really wouldn't be where we are without you guys. So keep up the good work, and hopefully in the season to come, we'll be able to uh, engage with more of your questions. Um, and if you are interested, you know, you can send us ideas for topics. We love it when you guys do that. Um, not because it makes our job easier, but because we do get to uh, sort of more, uh, in, you know, in real time engage with um, what you guys are thinking and uh, what you're interested in. Uh, so yeah, thank you. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So today we're going to be doing a question and answer episode, a little more informal than some of our other conversations. And so we just asked for you all to send us questions that you would want us to discuss. And so we're going to do our best to get through all of them. There are a good chunk of them. There was a lot of response this time uh, for it. So we'll, we'll do our best to get through everything. So we'll start with the kind of softball one. Uh, Matthew from YouTube. Well, I'm not softball in that it's a, it's a bad question, but, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's a book recommendation. And that, that those can be pretty easy. So Matthew from YouTube asks, what are the best popular level books for introducing someone who's from a more evangelical background to a sacramental worldview. So Father Creighton, what do you recommend people who are maybe in that, in that boat? Yeah, I think this is a, this is a really pertinent question. I've, I've had this question a few times personally in my ministry. Um, and I think there are a couple different ways you can approach this. Uh, you can approach it topically, which I think a lot of times people coming from a different tradition are going to have specific topics in mind that um, are going to be different from what they maybe grew up with. Um, so if you're thinking sort of topically, I think um, Brant Petrie is a great place to go for some of these sort of things. I think he writes in a really clear way. It's well-researched, it's well-argued, and it gives kind of a scope. And so I think if you're interested in say the Eucharist or in Our Lady, his books on the those topics are really excellent. 
uh, his Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Fantastic book. Um, it is written at a level I think most people can engage with. Um, and then he has like a follow-up book to that, which is Jesus or um, yeah, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, um, where he gets into Mariology and and the the traditions and understandings theological around the Blessed Virgin Mary. I know those are usually two topics that a lot of people coming from maybe um, an evangelical Protestant background are going to struggle with. And so I think those are two good places to go to say, here's how we view the Eucharist. This is the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist. This is the Catholic understanding of Our Lady. Um, and through those topics, uh, I think Petrie does a great job of touching to the broader trend of a, of a, of a real sense of sacramental ontology and, and a sacramental worldview um, that, I, that I think is really helpful. One thing I've noticed in these conversations is that there can be kind of two emphases when we talk about sacramental worldview. And I've noticed a lot of evangelicals will accept a kind of vague or broad sacramental worldview, which is which is certainly a good thing. Um, so for that, I might recommend something like Hans Borsma's book, Heavenly Participation, as far as introduction go. But I do think it's important because, you know, there is a an identifiable sacramental system. And sometimes uh, evangelicals who come into Anglicanism don't want to fully embrace the sacramental system. And mm. so uh, so I would definitely want to recommend a, a newer Anglican or a newer Catholic to really drill down into the sacramental system specifically. What is the Eucharist? What is baptism? What is matter, form, intention? You know, I mean, all these kind of questions. So for that, I might um, I might recommend... Uh, the Catholic Religion by Vernon Staley, his section on the sacraments is pretty solid. And then I believe there's a book called, um, oh, Father Creighton, you recommended it to me. William Law, L-A-U-X, I think. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, mass, um, uh, the, the What's it called? There, There's a series um, by Father Locks that was, I think it was published by Tan. Yes. Um, yes, and you can buy them on their website. Uh, I'm sort of forgetting the name of the series. It's called Mass and the Sacraments, A Course in Religion. And it's yeah. book two in a series called A Course in Religion for Catholic High Schools and ac Academies. Yeah, yeah. It, so he, he it was written a little while ago. And it it's was older. Mm -hmm. um, for quote unquote high school students. Um, but I think it's a great introduction. And it it, it, it is at certain points maybe beyond... Uh, it, it's expecting you to do some work and to do some some thinking, uh, but I don't think that's a bad thing. And and there, the series covers, I think, a lot of good things. There's one on church history. There's one yeah. on the, the sacraments, uh, ecclesiology. Great the, place to I, start. What I like about the one on the sacraments, it's not the most exciting read. Like you read something like Heavenly Participation by Dr. Borsman, you're like, well, this is really cool, you know? Yeah. And it's it's really beautifully written. This is written like kind of like a textbook, but I don't think that's bad because... Again, I think it's important that we, as we're as we're diving into what a sacramental worldview is, that there is a kind of systematized thinking about it. And so, while yeah, being immersed in in what the sacramental worldview entails and and how it changes the way we view reality, that's really important. But we need to have specific doctrines nailed down in terms of what is the Eucharist, you know, what's really going mm -hmm. on there, uh, th those kind of questions. And so, I think that the law book would be a really good place to start for someone in that 
position. So I might recommend those two, Heavenly Participation and the William Law book. So yeah, I think I think the those are both great shouts. Um, I'm also thinking maybe this would be maybe at a little bit higher of a level, um, but not too bad. I think it's pretty accessible for most people. Um, Henri de Lubac's book, Catholicism, I think is a good mm -hmm. place to start because he's going to touch on specifics, but also deal with the kind of overarching conceptual questions. And I think he does a really good job of presenting both a historical account of, of sort of Catholic theology and then also kind of brings it into the lived experience of the church. Um, so how, how it plays out, you know, what exactly is happening when we are united as the body of Christ, receiving the body of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, so I think that's a good place to start too. Absolutely. It's a good sort of covering everything kind of book. Emily Trout from our Facebook group, who is also one of my parishioners at St. Paul's here in Crownsville, uh, asks a great question. So Emily was baptized on Easter Sunday this past year, and she asks, as a relatively new Christian, I've noticed that there is a separation between believers and non-believers that can cause some, including myself, to have an us-versus-them mentality and can affect our social lives. How can we believers maintain our social groups, familial, friendship, etc.? that will most likely contain one or more non-believers while also maintaining a strong foundation in our beliefs? Is it our responsibility to convert friends and family? Is it better to unfriend someone who's strongly against God? This is, I think, a great question hmm. and one that we we do need to be very intentional when we think about these things. I, I remember a book that was really convicting to me, and I think more people need to read it, is the writings of Mother Maria Skopsova, Mother Maria of Paris, um, who was an Orthodox nun who fled Russia during the during the revolution and, and ends up in Paris. And she her writing is very beautiful, but she talks about this sin called ascetic disdain, which is how we we when we view the world as an enemy. And and by world here, I mean people who aren't Christians. Um, obviously, like I, we just did a baptism this past Sunday and we said, you know, that the child will fight manfully under the banner of Christ against Satan and sin and the world. So I, my understanding of the, of the scriptural data when it comes to defining the world is that there are these systems in place that are, that form us and shape or malform us and misshape us. And so that's what we resist. It's, it's, it's part of our contexts, you know, it's that kind of pervasive toxicness that, um, that encourages violence and and fallenness and all that. That's what needs to be resisted. And 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 sometimes that means resisting the agendas of certain people, uh, for sure. But that we should always view other people as those for whom Christ has died. So yes, it it can be that we get locked into this us versus them mentality. But we have to be aware then that we're we're very liable to to fall into the sin of ascetic disdain. That is the kind of looking down on those who are outside. Uh, and this is the sin that the Pharisees commit throughout the, the gospel. You know, Jesus eats with sinners. How dare he, you know, we thank, would never. Thank God I'm not that guy. Yeah, thank God I'm not like the, the publican right here, right? So there are two poles uh, when it comes to engaging with, with non-Christians. I mean, on the one hand, we can commit the sin of ascetic disdain. On the other hand, there is the very real 
uh, danger of capitulation to things that are not Christian in order to accommodate um, people. And so where we draw those lines will require, I think, the, the virtue of wisdom and prudence. It's not there's not always a one size fits all, you know, oh, well, when a person gets this amount of against God, you have to say no more. But you also know yourself, and as a new Christian who's growing in, in faith, you know, there may be contexts in which you might, at least for a time, have to remove yourself from as well. Um, so it really depends on the context, but I think generally our approach should be to keep relationships as much as possible. Because you never know what you might do or say that will impact someone positively a year down the road, five years down the road, ten years down the road. And so, uh, yeah, so I would I would I would keep the relationships open because relations relationships are the best way to evangelize, really. Um, there's certainly space to evangelize people you've never met before. You know, you're in the coffee shop and you just go up to someone and give them the gospel. That's fine. That's a good approach. But really building a relationship with someone, I think, is the best thing for us to do. Um, and so. So, yes. So and I wouldn't I wouldn't also say because one one part of that question included the 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 idea of am i responsible for converting my family and and friends who aren't christians yes and no i mean there's a sense in which you're called to preach the gospel whether they convert or not because of something you say is out of your control so you have to be faithful and you have to speak truth when you have the opportunity to in a loving way and what happens beyond that is what happens you know yeah and and i think too there's a sense in which as a, as a new Christian, as a neophyte, your sort of energies and actions should be in this regard. Um, I'm not going to say selfish. They're not selfish, but they need to be focused on sort of getting your house in order. Um, new Christian, you're in, you're in the learning phase. You're in the experiencing phase. You're in the phase of uh, soaking in and being soaked up by uh, the life of the church and the life of grace. And so I think there's a sense in which, uh, you know, converts, we talk about this, there's convert zeal. Uh, people mm -hmm. are excited about where they are and where they find themselves. Um, and that's a good thing. But that zeal should be directed towards your life in growing towards holiness and repenting of your sin. That is the, the place that your energy needs to be put. Are you spending that energy in a life of repentance? Um, or are you spending it, you know, trying to, you know, bash people over the head every time you see them with, um, you know, the gospel or something like that? I think it needs to be spent on repentance and I think it needs to be spent on living the life of grace. And there's a sense in which flowing from that, uh, your ability to be different, to live different, differently and to evangelize becomes even stronger. Um, and forming those relationships, not severing or cutting yourself off from those relationships as you grow in holiness, as you grow in a life of repentance, as you grow uh, in a life of grace, that's going to be evident to the people that you are connected with, that you are experiencing life mm -hmm. with in those met in that metrics, uh, in that matrix of relationships. And so, I think it's important um, 
to have that in the forefront of your mind. I also think it's really important to have love for the people that you see and that you meet. Um, because the sin of ascetic disdain is the easy route. The hard route is to love your neighbor, regardless of what your neighbor believes, regardless of if they're mean, if they're nasty about God, because ultimately, you know, your love for them could be the thing that helps them through a difficult situation or gives them hope. Um, and I think that's, I think that's really important. You know, C.S. Lewis, his quote about the Blessed Sacrament is important here. Next to the Blessed Sacrament, sacrament, the holiest thing that you will encounter is the person that you see on the street. Um, so even those people that are not Christians, even those people that may have animosity towards God or uh, are nasty and, you know, hard to deal with, there's still people that are loved by God. There's still people that have his image in them. And you need to do the hard work to love them. Um, and so I think, again, this is pastorally applicable. Like, talk to your priest, talk to your pastor. And if you need to sever a relationship because it's, you know, unhealthy and it's leading you towards something unhealthy, that's okay. But if you're severing the relationship for the purpose of not having to deal with the hard things, not having to love the person that is difficult to love, then pastorally, that might be the exact thing you need to do is to keep that right. relationship going. And that's just pastoral care. You know, you need to be involved in the pastoral care offered by your church, uh, offered by your priest, your pastor. Part of our growth is always uh, comes when when we're uncomfortable. Including Absolutely. including those relationships where it's not easy because you know that you're going to get some resistance. Um, that's actually a, a good thing to experience. It can be a frustrating thing. It can be a dangerous thing even, but it's a good thing uh, because it it's, can cause us to grow. I also think it's really important, just final thing I'll say about this is that when the two disciples come to Jesus at the beginning of John and they ask him where he dwells, Jesus says, come and see. He doesn't give them a long treatise. He doesn't give them, you know, uh, an apologetic Come and see. And I think that our posture when we're when we're dealing with, especially those people we're in long-term relationships with who might not be Christians, is is just that constant invitation. Hey, come and see. Come to church with me sometime, you know, let's or come to Bible study or come, you know, just just trying to get them, you know, involved in in some ways and and saying, Hey, come and see, come and see. Because you can talk to someone until you're blue in the face about about this stuff. And and sometimes that's what they need. They need to be intellectually convinced, but a lot of times it's far deeper than that. And so saying, hey, come and see is is often, I think, the best invitation. So, yeah, very, very good question, Emily. Thank you for sending that in. All right. So our third question for today comes from Matthew Leggett, who is a pretty active participant in our Facebook group. I believe Matthew is Orthodox, uh, which provides some context for this question, which is why do the Anglo-Catholics in your camp consider the filioque way as a valid addition to the creed? Now, before we answer that, we might want to say, just for those of you who may not be aware of what that is, in the Western version of the Nicene Creed, we, when we're talking about the Holy Ghost, say that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque is Latin for and the Son. In the original version of that creed, that, that phrase was not present. 
So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And so the Orthodox do not say this in their liturgy. They do not say in the Son, even to this day, though I think that the debate has cooled a little bit um, in terms of the vitriol between the two sides, at least uh, in real life, maybe not on the internet. But Yeah, the internet is a cursed place to go. <laughs> That's true. When you're dealing Especially with for ecumenical topic. dialogue, yes. Yeah. So then why do we, why do we, in Anglicanism, why do we say it? And we do say it. I mean, the, the, our prayer book tradition inherits the, the filioque. Um, I think it's a recent phenomenon. My understanding is the 2019 prayer book puts the phrase in brackets. But we have a friend who worked on the committee that produced the 2019 prayer book who says that putting it in brackets was merely a recognition that it was added to the creed. It is not an excuse not to say it, which I have also seen in places where people refuse to say it. But that's not what they intended when they put it in brackets. So, Father right. Creighton, what do you, how do you answer this when, you, when people ask you, why do we say that it was added later? I mean, this is a massive topic, really. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways you can go with this. And depending on the person I'm talking to, it will be a different response. Um, but I think let's, let's kind of go from the theological side of things first, the historical theological side of things first. As Anglicans, as Anglo-Catholics, we are going to um, insist upon, and I think this is something that some people nowadays aren't willing to do, um, some are, uh, Anglicanism is a Western church. So our patrimony, our theological understanding of this particular issue is going to be firmly rooted in the patrimony of the Western church. And so from the standpoint of what the Western church has received, the Western Church has received the Filioque as part of the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. And from a theological standpoint, you know, you'll hear this sometimes, there is uh, an argument that historically the Western Church, in having to deal with the heresy of Arianism, which hung on in the West far longer than it did in the East. Very prevalent in Spain. Correct. Um the West was forced to, for pastoral considerations, emphasize the fact that the Son is fully divine, that the Son is not a creature, the Son is not sort of divine, the Son is not a demigod, but that the Son, Jesus Christ, is co-equal, consubstantial, co-eternal with the Father. And by adding filioque by adding and the son we see ev as evidenced from scripture uh, the action of the son um, in that trinitarian action of uh, sending the holy spirit um, and i think it's important from a theological standpoint uh, to remember that by saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, we are not saying there are two sources in the Godhead from which the Holy Spirit proceeds. Maybe through the Son is a, a way to articulate uh, the same idea that 
the spirit, technically speaking, is spirated, that the spirit eternally is spirated um, through, uh, from the Father through the Son, um, because we do have some examples from Scripture where our Lord speaks of sending the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think, I think it's just, from a historical theological standpoint, it exists to emphasize the fact that the second person of the Trinity is co-equal and co-eternal and consubstantial with the Father and the, the Holy Spirit. Um, and yeah, there's there are differences on, on this approach. Uh, a good book that I recommend, uh, if you're interested in um, Trinitarian theology and you'd like to read a book on the topic, and you get a really good, fulsome sort of articulation, bigger than we can go into here, where you, you know, have a limited time and limited space, um, that I think really does get into this, that does a really great job. I think it's honestly the best theological defense of the filioque, while remaining ecumenically sensitive, is uh, Giles Omri's uh, book, The Trinity, and Introduction to Catholic uh, to the Catholic Doctrine on the Triune God. Uh, it's a part of the Thomistic Resource Ma uh, series of books, and it is really excellent. So if you want to do a deep dive into this and you want to get a really fulsome understanding of the filioque question uh, and the debate surrounding it from a Western perspective, um, the sort of why theologically, you can check that book out. It's well worth a read, and it's not it's not insanely long or anything. It's about 300 pages, so um, worth your time. And I think it should just be emphasized quickly as we end this question that ecumenical discussion has actually come a long way on this question. I mean, you, you think of the work of someone like a Callistos Ware who can basically affirm the filioque as long as we understand it in the precise way that that the church always has. You know, I think I think he's more comfortable, if I remember, with the phrase like from the father through the son or something like that. But yeah. uh, this isn't foreign to what the western west means when they add it so it's uh it, it actually there is some agreement there of course we don't speak for all orthodox and and just like with anglicans you know orthodox can be pretty varied in some of their convictions but i do think that it's important to note that there has been a lot of progress in terms of the conversation about the filioque i don't think it's at the barrier that it once was of course its addition came or, or rather, its its sort of dogmatization came in a really contentious time in church history and became a flashpoint for a number of other issues. So, uh, yeah, so it's important to remember that that the ecumenical progress has uh, been a good thing on that topic. Yeah, and and while the while Anglicanism remains a Western Church, um, I don't think it's a bad thing to insist upon and engage with our own patrimony. Um, I think there's some um, patrimony disdain. <laughs> we talked about ascetic <laughs> disdain. Of patrimony disdain. I think there's some patrimony disdain that goes on in certain Anglican circles, um, be it a, a sort of allergic reaction to Roman Catholicism and, and anti-Catholicism, something where the fact that the Anglican Church is a Western Church ruffles certain Anglicans' feathers. Um, and I'm not saying this uh, as if I hate 
Eastern Orthodoxy or anything like that. I love Eastern Orthodoxy. I think it's a beautiful um, tradition. It's a, you know, it's an important piece of the church. Um, ideally, the church breathes with, you know, a Western and an Eastern lung. And so I think um, that it's that it's not a it's not an us versus them mentality. It's not that the East is bad and the West is good. Um, but we shouldn't be scared of of uh, living within the tradition that we have inherited, living within the tradition that has nurtured uh, saints and that takes us uh, from a life of sin and a life of dislocation from God and brings us into a life of grace and union with God. And I think that uh, just as you recommended the like kind of come and see mentality i think there's a sense in which anglicans um can suffer from the problem of yeah but i like that thing over there better <laughs> because it doesn't ruffle my feathers or because of some bias that i have against you know this church or that church when in reality i think we just need to be uh, patient and we need to be open and we need to be receptive to the patrimony of our own church, to what the fathers that came before us uh, and the, the great saints that came before us have, have taught us um, and want to continue to teach us. And, you know, the grass isn't always greener. Um, and so I think I think there is a there's an important lesson here that, you know, maybe by God's grace, at some point there will be ecumenical discussions between the East and the West. And this issue can, you know, be looked at and studied and there will be consensus and maybe the filioque gets dropped and the Western Church agrees to it. And, you know, yay, fantastic. Ultimately, theologically, we don't mean anything different from what the East means when it doesn't use the filioque. So I think we just need to, until that day in God's kingdom, we continue to live uh, being, in a sense, proud of the, the patrimony that we have. Tirade over. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's important. It's important to... Um to honor that heritage because it's a good heritage and uh, avoid some of the caricatures I think uh, that are commonly used in these discussions. Um, okay. So our next question comes from Louie at S Louie Hogan from Twitter. And he asks, how do you approach the status of the Apocrypha and Deuterocanon as an Anglican? The articles unambiguously give them a different status from the rest of the Protestant canon but the historical data seems to suggest that they were known to and possibly, if not probably, be acknowledged as authoritative by our Lord and the apostles. Would you consider them to be scripture in the same way that the rest of scripture is? If so, what do you make of the articles designating them as invalid sources for doctrinal proof? Interestingly, people, I think, sometimes assume that this article is a Protestant, purely Protestant position, but it's actually not. It actually is a minority position in the medieval Catholic Church. Um, Hugh of St. Victor. I got to work him into every episode uh, right. this season, but I, he actually has the almost an identical position on the canon as the articles do. Which is quoting St. Jerome. Um, exactly. So, yeah, the it's a minority 
Western, uh, you know, position. Yeah. So um, it's uh, so I'm not really antagonistic to that article. I don't personally. I think I'm at a point given the data of of like you look at the different allusions to the apocryphal texts in the New Testament, and I do think that there is a strong case to be made that they were viewed as authoritative and scriptural. I think if you look at a lot of the patristics, they were viewed as authoritative and and as scripture. And so I don't have a problem with considering it. And and that's why when we earlier opened the season with the sacramentalist go scriptural, we did the book of Tobit with no real uh, caveat in terms of whether it's scripture or not. We just kind of went for it. And uh, I don't regret that and would do it again. 10 out of 10. It was a great conversation and a fun episode to do. Uh, but I do think that uh, I do think that probably they are scripture. And so we should treat them as such. Uh, the prayer book uses their readings in the liturgy. So Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi means that we should take them, take them seriously at least. Um, so I, I don't, I don't have a problem with them. I don't think doctrinally there's anything that you, that can only be justified by those books anyways. Maybe they say things a little bit clearer than some of the others do. Uh, but I think you can justify any doctrine that they would present using any other, a number of other scriptures that are commonly accepted by by the whole church. So I don't, I don't, don't think this poses a huge problem to me. What about you, Father Creighton? Yeah. Um, I, it doesn't pose a huge problem for me. Um, at the end of the day, I can, I personally consider them to be uh, authoritative canonical scriptures. Um, perhaps again, because that minority position existed, uh, if you want to make a nuanced position and say, that they may form um, sort of a canon within a, within the canon. Um, okay, does that functionally do anything for you? And I think you can go two ways. If it functionally means that you exile them and you completely cut them off, I'm opposed because I think that is contrary to their usage, uh, both historically and liturgically. As you mentioned, when we receive something liturgically, when it speaks in the liturgy, it's speaking authoritatively. It's speaking um, from the standpoint of the church. It's it, it has didactic and dialogical import. And so when we engage with those texts, we pray them and we worship with them. They're authoritative. Um, that principle of received usage is important here. Uh, so if you make them a sort of deuterocanon, which just means second canon. If you make them a deuterocanon, a second canon, and that means that you keep them and that you read them and that you pray with them and that you use them, then that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if you exile them, if, it, if it's sort of a stepping stone to cutting them out entirely because maybe uh, they ruffle your feathers or they um, say certain things that you disagree with, then I think we have a problem. Um, so at the end of the day, my functional position is that uh, I'm allowed to have opinions. And <laughs> I think that the minority opinion uh, is incorrect and that the majority opinion, which is to say they are canonical and of the same status as the other books, um, is correct. I, I, I personally function that way. Um, the book of Tobit or uh, Maccabees or whatever, is as is as scriptural as the book of Habakkuk or the Epistle of Saint James, 
which on depending on who you ask, those probably aren't, those may not be canonical either. So, <laughs> right, right, right. New, we could, <laughs> a question on the New Testament books. Now, that would be pretty interesting, um, considering the fact that there was some dispute amongst them uh, in the early church over particular New Testament books. That's that true. never really seems to get talked about. Well, like, like I'm pretty sure in our lectionary, the book of Revelation doesn't even really make an appearance, and you only read it on St. Michael, and uh, there's one other day where we read it, but it's not, like, we just don't engage it liturgically very much. We, the, it's interesting. The prayer book has us engage the Deuterocanonicals way more than it has us engage with the book of Revelation, which is very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, from a liturgical theology standpoint, um, there's a reason for that. Yes. Also, <laughs> you know? also, read the book of Wisdom. Yeah. Of Solomon. I yeah. mean, it's it's amazing. I, if you ever have any question about whether those books are valuable, I mean, just read it. It's a, it's beautiful. Um, absolutely. Uh, now, I did hear an argument from a Catholic friend of mine back in the day, and, and I, I don't think this is a strong argument one way or the other, but he said, you know, six is the number of man, and the Protestant canon has 66 books, but the Catholic canon has 73, so you get seven and three together. Um, so... There you go. If that maybe that's what you need to put you over the edge. If that sort of numerology doesn't do it for you, I don't know what will. To be honest, that's that's definitely not the biggest stretch in terms of numerology <laughs> right. I've I've seen. So yeah. Anyways, yeah, very interesting question, and um, definitely, yeah, it, I would definitely, I would challenge anybody who who would be more inclined to write them off. Uh, just say, hey, go read them first. Yeah. Come and see. A hundred percent. I think that's the, that's the first port of call is to say, have you read them? Yeah. Um, because I think when you do, you're going to, you're going to be impacted by them and you're going to see why our Lord and his disciples and the Jewish community at large are impacted by them mm -hmm. and why that historically makes it so important to the early church to retain. Fun, fun Deuterocanon story or Apocrypha story. I, w before I became Anglican, I was exploring and I bought the Orthodox Study Bible. Mm. I was at a, an Ollie's, which is a store in Virginia that uh, has things on discount, and they were selling that for like ten bucks. So I bought it, and so I went back home that summer, not being Anglican, not being anything except non-denominational. I went to this church that my parents were going to at the time, which was pretty reformed. It had been planted out of a large independent reformed Baptist church in Raleigh, huge church. And they had this guy preaching who was an older, not older, but like middle-aged gentleman who had just started going to seminary to pursue ministry. And, you know, new preachers, especially in the reformed tradition where they are expected to preach for 45 minutes, new preachers can often go really long. And this guy his his sermon was not super coherent and it was it was longer than 45 minutes and i got so bored like 10 15 minutes into it so i read bell and the dragon for the first time in my orthodox study bible thought this is so cool i love that yeah you also have to be careful uh viewers listeners uh, if you do have an orthodox study bible the orthodox name books differently, differently. yes um, it's the same book, um, but you're going to get, you know, first, second, third, fourth kingdoms yes, instead of the book of Kings and Chronicles. So just be aware of the fact that there are some different names, um, but they are, 
usually you know it's the same it's the same book just different names. different names yeah, yeah. Um, that so, is true yeah, yeah I, I, will feel very different i i had a parishioner come to me and was like uh what's the third book of kingdoms <laughs> it's like oh let me explain yes yes good okay this is a slightly controversial question um yay ezer uh, at missile modernist from twitter says, as an Anglo-Catholic, there are certainly many areas where I find myself in agreement with Rome, but one area where I think the Reformers got it completely right was in their reaction against indulgences, both their abuses as well as their theological underpinning and the whole system of the treasury of merit. Having said that, is there any value in all, at all in these ideas that an Anglo-Catholic could make use of properly reformed and corrected? I will briefly, so this is an area where Father Creighton is probably more equipped to, to provide an answer. I will just briefly say that, uh, well, two things. First, we're currently reading through Crudet's homo with the Patreon, communion of Patreon saints. And he makes an argument about Christ's merits in in the work, you know, that 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 Christ is the perfect man, has has achieved such a victory that he, and, and because he's God, warrants these kind this kind of eternal infinite merit that then is passed on to those who are in him. And so I that really helped unlock this concept for me a little bit more because when you realize that the in Christness aspect is key, there is no replacing of Christ and his work when we talk about the merits of the saints, quite the opposite. Right, the saints are perpetuating or cooperating with that work, and we do that through this wonderful sharing of merits. Um, I, I think it's a really cool picture, and I also think that the passage from James about the prayer of the righteous man that availeth much is really important because you can read into the the especially you know maybe high scholastic doctrines, and and you kind of maybe get lost in some of their categorization of merit which is maybe not uh, uh unnecessary but it can kind of feel far afield from the the point mm. but if you think about hey this is this is how the church takes care of her members the prayer of the through the prayer of the righteous man i think that really helps under make sense of the of the concept in my mind now father creighton will give you a much more precise answer than that but that's that's where i come from well, I, I don't know how precise my explanation will be, hopefully precise. Um, this is a big topic, and, you know, the, the scholastic definitions do help. And so I think if you are theologically prepared with good foundations and you're interested in this, then you can pursue um, the sort of kind of the, the pinnacle of uh, the West's theological articulation of, of what's going on here. But at a very basic level, at a, at a very basic surface level, let me just say this. Without getting into the distinctions of what is condign merit and all those other things, merit is God crowning his own work in his creation. And so one of the fun fundamental things that's playing here is this idea of secondary causation and participation. So we, we need to have, and we should talk about a robust theology of the body of Christ. 
And so if we are incorporate in the in the mystical body of Christ, if we are made members of Christ through our baptism, and if we are given the means of grace through the sacraments and we are participating in that life, then the things that we do that are in accordance with God's will and plan that are per, that are cooperating with grace in our life, those things are given to us. And so when we see um, in Revelation, as we, you know, we just mentioned Revelation, when we see in Revelation, the crowns of the saints, something's happening. Uh, St. Paul, we run a, we run a race, not for a corruptible crown, but for an incorruptible crown. There's still a prize. And that prize is eternal life and, and the beatific vision. But there's also a recognition that you have participated in the life of grace that God meant for you to participate in. Uh, if you're reading the prayer book, uh, those good works which God has prepared for us to walk in. Uh, there's a sense in which, as St. James says, you know, the, that, that those two things, faith and works, are working together. Uh, it's one reality. And so when we are participating, when we are cooperating with God's grace, he crowns us with his own work. Because the only way we're able to do it is because Christ himself through his salvific life, death, and resurrection, and ascension into heaven, merited for us salvation. So we are participating in his salvific work. We are participating in what he did for us. And because of his goodness, because of his love for us, because of the grace which he gives us as a gift, we are given that merit. We are given that reward. And it's not something that we hoard or something that we hold on to uh, like, you know, smog in The Hobbit. We don't hoard our merit like a dragon. We engage in secondary causation. Uh, we give it back to Christ. We give it back to God in worship. And we say, this is ultimately yours. And that treasury is infinite because Christ himself merited infinitely our salvation and good works. And so I think the 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 fact that the church uh, is the place where we are the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ. So the church gives to her members what she needs so that we achieve salvation, that we, that we live the life of grace. So if you want to take an issue maybe with um, the Holy Father's role, um, the pontifical office, and how it appropriates that merit. If you want to have issues uh, with whether or not the Petrine office is the one that can dispense that merit from the treasury of merits, then that's fine. We can have that con you know conversation. Uh, I think it's good, and you know you can land on either side of that argument. But ultimately, I think it's still important to remember that it's the churches. That the treasury of merit is the church's because the tre because the church is the body of Christ and those merits belong to Christ and those saints that merit participate in cooperate with engage in causation with uh, the Son of God it's literally being a co-heir mm -hmm. um, and we don't merit by our own 
you know, action. We don't merit by our own power. We're not co-equal with God so that we can demand uh, recompense or merit uh, as, as if we are equal. But it's given as a gift. Yes. Um, it's given out of love and as a gift. And I think that's important. And I think there is, you know, there's misunderstanding about what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on this particular topic. There's certainly historical abuses that surrounded this particular topic. There was uh, historical uh, rectification that went on because of those abuses within the Roman Catholic Church because of this topic. Um, so if you've got issues with Tetzel selling indulgences and, you know, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs, okay. Plenty of other Roman Catholic theologians, saints, and members of the church also had issues with that particular uh, approach to the concept of the treasury of merits and the abuses that were that were enacted. But we also need to be really aware of and, and understand what the church is actually teaching rather than accepting a misunderstanding of what the church is teaching or accepting a misarticulation. Because um, I think a lot of people, and I'm not trying to be mean here, but I think a lot of people see the sort of negative propaganda from the reformers about the issues uh, and don't do much digging past the critique to see what, well, what does the Roman Catholic Church actually believe on this topic? Um, and as Anglicans, as Anglo-Catholics who are engaging with the Western patrimony and that are, are living uh, within the, the Western Church, I think we need to be willing to engage with this topic um, because it's an important theological topic. And at the end of the day, I think if you understand or, or you're pro or interested in the idea of participation in the life of Christ and what it means to be the body of Christ, then the treasury of merit isn't, gonna, isn't going to pose the problem that it might if your view is maybe incomplete about what that what that actually means. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, this is, I think it's, I think it's good theology. The, the, the official position on the treasury of merits and the fact that you can't sell indulgences and that there were issues in the medieval church, all of those positions that the Roman Catholic church has made, I think it's ultimately good theology, but I think we got to do the work to like actually understand it. Right. Absolutely. Um, I love the idea of gift and all that. I think that really is important because the the reciprocity of gift giving comes into play, the receiving and giving, the receiving and giving. And it, it's kind of that constant cycle of it, but it's it's about goodwill. It's about relationship, right? I mean, that's what we do with our spouses. We love them, so we get them gifts. And, you know, we kind of expect gifts in return, not in a tit for tat, you know, I spent $75, you spend $75, but in the sense that we're in a relationship that's based on love. And so it has to go both ways. And so yeah. you see that. So like, um, like if you're in the society of Charles King and martyr, one of the prayers that you pray on Tuesday, when you're doing your prayers for the society is a prayer for souls in purgatory where you offer your merits for them. And it's a really beautiful picture because you know, when, when you die, uh, somebody will pray that same prayer for you. And I need, I need all your merits. Pray for that. Now pray for me. Now give me your merits. Yeah. And, 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 
maybe one area that people are going to balk at here is the transactional language. Mm. And I'm okay with balking at transactional language. Um, because I think it let's let's take a, a, a parallel example with atonement paradigms. Uh, I think transactional languages uh, language in atonement paradigms is problematic um, because ultimately salvation is not transactional, it's transformational. It's metanoia, it's conversion, it's it's uh, relational trans transfiguration. it's it's ultimately relational. And so if you have an issue with the transactional language present uh, around the theology, of the treasury of merits. Okay, that's that's a fine. You can you can balk at that, but it's only metaphorical, right? This is an analogy. So much of theology, I think, sometimes gets missed that we 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 do theology by analogy all the time because so we're talking about an inexhaustible mystery, which is Christ, which is redemption, which is salvation. These are mysteries, and we can speak about them in certain ways. We have approved sort of dogmatic lexicons about how to speak concerning, you know, the Trinity or concerning X, Y, or Z. And that's good. That's how it works. Um, the, the Christological definition, so-called, from Chalcedon is not a definition. It's here's appropriate language to speak about this mystery because the definition implies that we have defined the thing and there's no way in, in human language you can define the mystery of the word made flesh but we can talk about it in approved ways we can talk about it in ways that are deemed correct by the life of the holy spirit in the church and so you know it let, let's talk about the treasury of merit as relational from now on let's talk about it as lover giving to beloved a gift and the beloved giving to the lover a gift. Like, th this is fine. This is ultimately a good thing because we're starting to understand that life in the body of Christ means a whole lot more than we usually let it mean. It's, it's way more real. And the participation that we engage with, our fellow Christians th that we engage in, um, that, that connectivity is so much greater than we allow it to be. Because we want to live itemized, atomized, separate lives, but we don't and we can't, and we're saved as a community in the body of Christ. So it's relational. Let's let's make the treasury of merit conversation relational. Maybe someone needs to write that book. Do you want me to write that book? <laughs> yeah, I think Creighton's got to write that book. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Good, good. Yes, absolutely. Okay, we've got a few more questions here, um, and I think these won't these won't take maybe as long as some of the other ones. Um, yeah. Daniel Smith from our Facebook group asks, "How are saints recognized in the G three and the continuum? Are Orthodox and Roman Catholic saints all recognized? Is there a formal process in the G three for canonization? Uh, there is not a process, as far as I'm aware, in the G three for ca canonization. Uh, the saints that we celebrate we inherit from the older calendar of the church uh so our dates are sometimes a little different than the modern uh roman catholic calendar is uh post sort of all the liturgical reforms but in general it has a good number of what we would consider eastern and western saints uh on there 
there is a section, at least in the newer missile, I don't know about the older missiles just because I haven't really used them very much, but there is a section in the back of the of the Anglican missile that recognizes the Anglicans, um, important Anglican figures. So, for example, there's an E.B. Pusey feast with uh, with propers and everything like that, and Charles, King of Martyrs, in there, and there are a number of a number of the great uh, Anglican Anglican theologians and Christians are are in there. But they're always referred to as blessed, not saint. Now, my understanding is in the Roman Catholic system of canonization, uh, you're blessed if, is it one miracle is attached to your name, but not two? Um, I think the first is servant of God. Okay. And then blessed is like the penultimate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think you start the, the canonization process uh, if you've been approved in that first step as the servant of God so-and-so and then blessed so-and-so. Um, so we, we kind of just use Beati, you know, we just sort of say blessed. Yeah. Um, which is informal. Right. 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 That's ultimately. It's sort of a local ritual, uh, or something like that. It's not really a yeah objective statement. It's just saying, Hey, these are people who have formed our particular tradition. And so we think they're worth, they're worth noting. Um, yeah. I don't sell I don't end up celebrating that many of those days just because the calendar is pretty full already. <laughs> Yeah. So it's very rare that you just have a day set aside for an Anglican uh, blessed. Like I think yeah. we did John Keeble a couple of weeks ago, but uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 not some it's not the, something that we do very often, and it's not wholly prescribed either. No, not, no, not, you don't have mandatory. To. That's um, right. The only one that I have to do is Charles the Martyr because we do. I'm a member of the society, so you have to assist at or say mass on his feast day. Yeah, and 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 uh, King Charles the Martyr is one of those interesting figures within Anglican history that he seems to be um, really the only Anglican that has been sort of formally canonized within within Anglicanism. Um, his you know his uh, martyrdom is 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 in it was put in the prayer book. Uh, it was taken out later. Uh, which is one of the aims of the Society of King Charles the Martyr is to get it back, uh, put back into the prayer book. Um, but, you know, really he's the only one that went through a semi-formal process of canonization to be then included in the prayer book. Um, the others, like John Mason Neal or, or E.B. Pusey or whoever, um, that was the particular choice of the compilers of said missile uh, to include them and to give them propers and things. Um, but it, there was no sort of universal putting them into a liturgical text. Uh, and I think that that's just the continued position of the uh, G3 churches is to prioritize the Western calendar um, principally and obviously to recognize the saints that uh, are, are pre-congregational, that are, that are pre-schism, uh, definitely to say that the, you know, Church of the First Thousand Years, we're definitely going to recognize the, we're not just going to get rid of the Eastern saints or something like that, uh, which the, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't do either. Um, so we, we have all of those pre-schism uh, saints. It, it's, it's largely the Western calendar. Um, but we also, I mean, I know personally, like, my position on this is like the the Eastern Orthodox Church has a mechanism for recognizing its own saints, um, and as does the Roman Catholic Church. 
So while, you know, a given like liturgical text that we might use may not have St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, uh, I'm going to refer to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton as a saint because she has been canonized. Um, or, you know, if we're looking at Mount Athos um, and St. Paisios is mentioned, then I'm going to acknowledge and refer to him as St. Paisios because the East has canonized him. Um, but that's that's more uh, from a liturgical standpoint. We're we're gonna we're gonna accept the Western calendar, um, principally. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we get a question from Lauren Michael Bialik in the Facebook group, I believe, who asks, "What's the progress between the PNCC slash Union of Scranton and the G three? My understanding, and Father Creighton actually is uh, participates in those dialogues. But my understanding is that there's a little bit of a holdup given the discussion about the nature of orders. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, as I have not been um, told by the the chairman of the committee, um, you know, I have not been like sort of you know, authorized to give a full a fulsome explanation of exactly what we're doing in the dialogue. But as a member of the dialogue. Um, we are exploring uh, a number of theological and ecclesiological issues that, um, and historical issues between the two churches. And uh, we've been meeting for a few years now. And I would just say that it's important to remember that ecumenical dialogues really take time um, and that it's about forming positive, uh, fraternal and uh, communal relationships with each other. And that's been one of the best parts about the PNCC G3 dialogue is the fact that through this process, we really have um, formed some really great relationships um, between the churches. And um, I, I have been blessed to uh, participate in the, in the dialogue and to, um, to meet and become friends with uh, some of the PNCC's clergy, um, their bishops and um, senior priests. And I, I have really benefited from, from that experience. Um, so we're just dealing with issues as they, as they come up, um, which is what ecumenical dialogues do. We yep. write papers um, looking at a particular area and we have largely so much in common and so much agreement. Um, and the issue that we have been talking with recently is just the issue of orders. Um, the PNCC has a uh, limited intercommunion relationship with the Roman Catholic Church. So we as the G3 want to be mindful of that. The PNCC want to continue to honor that relationship. Um, and so the question of orders is an important question. Lots of different layers to it. Uh, ecclesiological layers, sacramental theological uh, layers. And we're just going through the process of uh, kind of unpeeling that onion. Um, we have a history together, the PNCC and the Episcopal Church. Uh, we're in full communion with each other for a time in the 20th century. Uh, and that has, that has uh, been operative and functional for us in the dialogue. And so hopefully we will continue uh, through God's grace to grow closer to each other and, uh, you know, 
at some point in the future uh, to follow our Lord's command that we be one, um, that we would make ecumenical strides and 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 put that band back together. Um, so yeah, it, I can't I can't give like too much about like the nitty gritties and things like that. Uh, if you are interested uh, in what's going on, um, I would say to follow the um, G3 primates on their social media um, or the PNCC on their social media. Uh, also, there's usually a write-up that gets published in the Trinitarian after our meetings, which sort of gives the press release on um, what we discussed, how things are going, uh, what kind of things we're, we're planning on doing in the future. Um, we hope to continue to cooperate um, at all levels with the PNCC. Uh, we were able to participate in their fundraising for uh, their uh, churches in Poland and the Ukraine uh, when the conflicts uh, recently arose uh, in Ukraine. And so we were able to raise money to help them out. Um, yeah, so I think those those sorts of grassroots efforts uh, really do a lot to help just continue to knit the churches together. And I pray for some fruit to come from those sorts of things. Should be said too, we've got a couple folks in the communion of Patreon saints who are Polish National Catholic who participate in our Discord conversations and stuff. So you could always uh, pony up five bucks a month to join the Discord and you can ask them any question you want to about the Polish National Catholic Church. So that's our commercial for joining the Patreon Communion of Patreon Saints. Absolutely. Uh, so Ezra uh, at Missile Modernist from Twitter, again, asks another question that I thought was really interesting, which is how do Anglo-Catholics handle the question of assurance of salvation? And I think uh, just given the amount of time that we have, this will be our last question. And I'll just say that the main way that we would handle the, the question of assurance is through sacramental participation, uh, not through doctrines like uh, predestination, um, which the reform might kind of lean on. I actually think in some ways those doctrines upend any notion of assurance, right? I mean, you're uh, you're assured as long as you're elect, but how do you know you're elect is kind of the, the big question, especially once you sever baptism and the Eucharist from the sort of ex opere operato position that the, that the Catholic Church holds. You know, we believe that when someone's baptized, they become a Christian and that they always have that baptism to fall back on. It may be that they become bad Christians. Uh, it may be that they become Christians who are going to hell, but they always are Christians who have the full sacramental system available to them. So they can go to confession at any time and, uh, and, and, you know, find themselves back in grace. So I think that's a much more intuitive system. I think it makes more sense with the scriptures. Uh, and so, you know, we don't have to wring our hands wondering, am I saved or not? No, you are baptized. You're a Christian. You're a part of the church. And so live as becomes it uh, is, I think, the, the the calling for all Christians. And um, so go to confession regularly, do self-examination, receive communion, uh, do good works, pray, uh, devote yourself to our Lord. These are the best things that you can do to assuage those problems. And of course, we want to be careful of scrupulosity, which is a, a sin. Um, so, so we don't want to we don't want to go overboard, but uh, it's it's good to it's good to have a degree of fear and trembling as well. Um, so that's that's kind of our general approach. We I, I think apostasy is a real sin. You know, I mean, I think people can actually be baptized and and live in a state that's outside of grace, and that's a really dangerous place to be. 
and we don't want to be there. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be watchful because our enemy prowls like a roaring lion. Yeah. I mean, if we avail ourselves of the means of grace, then the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. I think that's the, the simplest way to, to look at it. Uh, another way I like to look at it is um, the theological virtue of hope, mm-hmm. um, which is given to us. It's a gift. Um, but Christian hope is not theoretical. It's substantive. And I think a lot of times when, when, when we think about hope, what we think about is a sort of theoretical hope. It's like a colloquial hope. Um, like, man, I, I really hope there's ice cream sandwiches in the freezer tonight. And if I'm just pulling that out of the, out of my hat and I have nothing to ground that on, just other than the fact that I know that I have a freezer downstairs um, and I like ice cream sandwiches, that's not actually theological hope. Right. Theological right. hope is substantive because it's the person of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And so what Christ does for us is objective. And if we avail ourselves of what he gives us, if we cooperate with him, then we have a substantive hope. So our hope for salvation um, is real. It's meaningful. It's meaty. It's it's that ice cream sandwich. That's a, it's actually unwrapping it and eating it. Um, and so I think it's important to remember that the theological uh, virtue of hope is 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 important here because if we are faithful to Christ and follow His commands and um, live a life of grace and participate in the sacraments and the life of the church and repent of our sins and seek His will for us and love our neighbors then we can have hope because Mm -hmm. he's not a liar he's not you know if we do all those things in in faith and love he's not gonna say yeah i don't really feel like it today like you know all the things it's all great um, transformed life, participated in the life of grace, loved your neighbor, repented of your sins, but I'm not all that interested in saving you right now. He's not capricious. He's not going to just leave you hanging. Um, and so while it's not going to be the the reformed doctrine of assurance of salvation, um, I do think that you know we're given the means of our salvation. And so if we avail ourselves of them, then we can have hope in their efficacy. I do love the prayer of humble access and uh, his property is always to have mercy. You know, yeah. it's helpful. It's, it's a good reminder that no matter what we do, his property is always to have mercy. So when we go to confess, it's like Soren Kierkegaard in one of his sermons um, that he preached uh, when he was a postulant in the Lutheran church he actually talks up confession in one of them and he means auricular confession. And he says, when you go to the confessional, who's condemning you? Not God, not the priest, you condemn you, <laughs> but that's how we're saved, right? Is yeah. when we confess our sins. And so, yes. So it's very important to, to always throw ourselves at the mercy of God because he's faithful to that. Absolutely. So if he's brought us this far, he'll bring us, uh, he'll bring us the rest of the way. Yeah. We did have one more question. Uh, the question is from Theo Geek 1984 on Twitter, and it's when is the McRib coming back? And I say whenever it comes back, it's too soon. 
it, it should never come back. It should never come back. I do not like the McRib. I don't either. I, I, there are very few things that are as unappealing as the McRib to me. Yeah. And I'm not even anti-McDonald's, really. I mean, I, I mean, it's not great for you, but I'm not like I don't like boycott McDonald's or anything. Um, in fact, probably the opposite. I probably go too much, but um, but no, I, I you I, you would have to pay me to eat the McRib. Yeah, I'm I'm not a big fast food guy mm. uh, in general, um, and I don't like I don't really like burgers all that much. It's not something I crave. I'll, if it's in front of me, I might eat it, but it's like not a craving. Creighton really um, outing himself as not American today. <laughs> uh, but I will say this. The thing at McDonald's that I do like is I like the filet of fish during Lent. So the filet of fish could replace the McRib for all I care, you know? like We should say happy birthday, Grimace. Yep. It is Grimace's birthday. I have not had that yet because I haven't been to McDonald's in a, in a while. But The Grimace shake? Yeah. Wow, we're really up with the times. We are. We are. Very good. Well, thank you again for everyone to bring your for bringing your questions, and we appreciate it. Hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, I did want to recommend, kind of as we're coming to an end, we we have a listener who just recently joined our our Discord, uh, Cody Moran, who is a teacher, and I think is going through um, through the process of becoming a, a clergy. Uh, but he has a Substack that he, I, he sent me, and I read it and really appreciate what he's trying to do there. And the Substack is called the Newman Condition, um, so it's a sort of Anglo-Catholic, very Thomistic way of of thinking through theology. So if you have some time, go read the Newman Condition. I, I will try to remember to put that in the show notes for today. I feel like sometimes when I go back and listen to episodes, we say things about putting stuff in show notes and then we forget to, but I really do mean it that I fully intend to put these in the in the show notes. I promise. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, for the final time this season, uh, we will do everybody's favorite segment, what we're into. Father Creighton, what are you into lately? And you have to be careful because whatever you're into right now, you're into for the rest of the summer. Oof. Well, it's not going to no last that long. It's not going to last that long. Um, I'm into some fiction, some historical fiction. Uh, Bernard Cornwell's Fools and Mortals. Hmm. If you are uh, watching the video, the lovely cover is available. Um, I'm a big fan of his books in general. I have read all of them. This is the only one I haven't read. And uh, it's really fun. It's about Richard Shakespeare, which is William Shakespeare's younger brother. Hmm. And he's sort of in the like body, brutal theater world, kind of the underbelly of the London theater world. Um, he dreams of being a star, um, but he's sort of outshined by his brother. <laughs> as you could imagine. Um, and he's got to, you know, there's like a lot of different things at play. There's some like mystery, some sort of Sherlock Holmesy, whodunit kind of stuff that goes on. Um, some, uh, some works are stolen. Uh, a manuscript goes missing and uh, he gets blamed and he's got to try to exonerate himself. It's, it's really fun. And, uh, yeah, it definitely is one of those great one-off novels. Mm. It's not in a series. It's just one one story told start to finish, uh, which I like. I like series too, but 
it's a it's a fun one. I'd I'd recommend it. It's a pretty quick read too. Hmm. Hmm. Very good. Very good. Bill and Dick Shakespeare, huh? Oh yeah. <laughs> my uh my my what I'm into is also a book. Um I like to when I do morning prayer, I like to have some sort of devotional reading to kind of go along with it. So for a, quite a while I was doing the confession or the conferences by John Cassian mm. and really enjoyed those quite a bit. But uh, when I finished that, I was looking for something else to do. And I, I kind of like to oscillate between more modern and patristic type literature. You know, I, I don't like to just pick one time period. This is kind of an interesting one because it kind of bridges the gap. So I'm, I'm into The Noonday Devil by Jean-Charles Nault, who is an abbot um, of, a, of a monastery. And so the book is really good. It, it draws heavily from Evagrius Apontis, who who did a lot of work on the idea of acedia, which is that kind of despair and, and laziness and slothfulness. It's, it's sort of a combination of things. It's really quite a dangerous, quite a dangerous temptation and vice once you give into it. Um, and so anyway, so I've been just reading it very slowly and meditatively feel like I can certainly identify seasons in my life where I have struggled with this and i think some of the symptoms of it you know pop up every so often and it's important to be aware of it because one of the problems that that nalt mentions is that often acedia works in us without us being aware that we have it and so uh anyway so i've i found it to be to be useful and i think he's right the uh the subtitle is a CD of the unnamed evil of our times. And I think he's exactly right that this is a, a much more prevalent struggle that people face even today. I mean, it's one thing if you're a monk in the, in the middle of the desert in the third century with nothing to do, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon when it's burning hot outside and you have no food, I can easily understand why somebody in that position would be tempted to a CD. But we, I think are, we grapple with it, but without even the vocabulary for it, and that becomes a real issue. So I, in fact, like I'll, I'll, I'll give you a story. I, I published a newsletter for our, um, for our parish and I always include a little reflection at the end. And I did one on Acedia and had multiple people tell me, wow, I have totally felt that or am currently undergoing what I feel like is this. And I had no idea that was a thing. Hmm. So, you know, I mean, when you have two or three people tell you that just, by by way of a short newsletter reflection, I think it tells you there's there's more there, and and I've certainly seen it in in the lives of of people who I've worked with uh, at the parish level before too. Um, so anyway, so it's 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 a helpful book. It's it's written sort of academically uh, in some ways, but um, but also devotionally, and so I think it's it's good. A lot of primary source quotations and stuff, so it's mm. it's a helpful book. I know. Um, I know Dr. Borsma uh, uh, requires it as reading for some of his classes, um, not the ones that I took, but he does require it as reading. So, um, yeah. So the Noonday Devil, watch out for him. Yeah, he's creeping around. Well, listeners, thank you again for supporting us, for listening to us, for engaging with us. We really do appreciate it. This has been a really fun season. We've gotten, as usual, to have some really interesting conversations uh, with each other, but also with some really quality guests. We look forward to continuing to do that with you this fall. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see you in a couple months. Father Creighton, do you want to close this out? Maybe we can pray the, the Hail Mary responsively. Absolutely. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our deaths. Amen.